today. If you are visiting with us today, we want to extend you a welcome. Uh, if you are a regular member of our church, we also want to welcome you. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is Paula Armfield, and I am delighted to share with you what the Lord has given me for you and the new things that he might give you today. Uh, before we begin, I want to remind you do not look at your phones. And I want to remind you that if you are here today, God wants to say something to you. He knows your heart. He sees it. And he has something to speak to your life, your situation. Let's open the word of God. And we are going to be reading Hebrews 4 today. So turning your Bibles or your phones, one, one exception, to Hebrews 4. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands... Let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we have believed, for we who have believed enter that rest as he has said. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news fail to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David, so long afterward, and the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. This is the word of the Lord. Dear God, there are warnings, invitations, calls, reminders in these words we just read addressed to Hebrew Christians many thousands of years ago. And today these words find their way to this community, 
to our ears. And I pray that they would also find their ways in our hearts, Lord, for transformation and for a greater understanding and surrendered to Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. As a form of recap, maybe you didn't know this, but the audience of this book, the Hebrew Christians that are listening to these words from this preacher, because most likely this was a sermon, they were under intense persecution, imprisonment. For them, following Christ was costly. So here the preacher is presenting to them a series of stories from what they were very familiar with, their Hebrew tradition, their Hebrew legacy, to elevate their view of this one man, Messiah, Jesus Christ. And he's telling them that Jesus is superior. He is the one who fulfills all those promises you have heard about. The one who fulfills all those roles that all these leaders had in our community. He is the center of it all and superior to everyone and everything. But not only that, he is calling them to respond to this Jesus. He's saying, yes, he is superior. He is ultimate. But you have to respond to the person of Jesus Christ. And he's saying, because Jesus is superior, he is worthy of your trust. So in every section of this sermon, there is a, a, an elevation of Jesus and also a warning and a challenge to remain faithful to this Jesus, despite or in the persecution and difficulty they are walking through. Remember that when they heard these words, and later on when they read them, these words were not divided into chapters and verses like we have them in our Bibles today. But this section, chapters 3 and 4, is actually one section, right? And in this one section, we're going to see how Jesus is superior, but also hear about the challenge to remain faithful. Last week, Jay displayed for us, unpacked that superiority, superiority of Jesus compared to a character of the Old Testament, Moses. And today, we're going to explore the challenge. What is the response to this person of Jesus Christ? Now remember, all of the stories, the events, the places that the speaker is choosing to bring to their attention are not by chance. They're all very intelligently picked to make a point. They're not random. And the preacher wants us, case, us as well to place ourselves in these stories, in these narratives, and to let them reveal what hearts, our response to who God says he is and what our true convictions are. So the author is by no means telling all these narratives, narratives, quotes, references, points to just increase our intellectual knowledge of who Jesus is, right? No, he is relentless. And with everything he brings up, he says, now look at you. He places them right in front of this narrative, 
right in front of the person of Jesus Christ for confrontation and transformation because a lot is at stake. Now, it's time for story time. How many of you are familiar with the story of the Hebrew people as narrated in the Old Testament scriptures? Raise your hands. Confidently, come on. Good. If you are not, that's okay. I'm going to tell you the story today. And it's going to be a little bit of a long story, but hey, keep in mind that these people had all this memorized and internalized from the moment they were tiny kids. We don't have that. So in order to understand what this uh, portion of the sermon is telling us, we have to immerse ourselves in this story. So as you hear the story and as you look at the visuals, think about where you are in this story. Place yourself in this story and pay attention to God's promises and especially his promise of rest throughout the whole narrative. So are you ready? Okay, get, get comfortable. All right, here we go. In the beginning, no, never mind. <laughs> All right. God, Yahweh, eternal creator, chooses a man, elderly, childless, pagan, which means he doesn't know who God is, called Abram. And he chooses this man and promises that his descendants would be God's chosen people, his special possession, not because they are great, but because of God's initiative and his own compassion that moves him towards creation. This people, Abraham's descendants, were to be God's representatives, image barriers to show the whole earth who God is and how he desires to get near his creation. They were to be to the nations what a couple, Adam and Eve, had failed to be in the Garden of Eden. They were to show God's authority and love. And not only would they be God's special possession, but they would also receive from God and enter a land, fruitful, beautiful, their own, where they would experience all the goodness and abundance that God desired, desired for them. In a sense, they were promised a return to Eden, to that rest, that peace, that wholeness that they had lost in Eden, and extend that rest to all of creation. That was the call. This people grew in number, and after hundreds of years, they find themselves in a situation opposite to anything God had promised slaves in Egypt, under the oppression of Pharaoh, building bricks day and night with no rest for their body or their souls, building monuments for foreign gods and wondering, where is our God? Where is the God who chose Abraham and called us his own? Where is he? Rightly so, they thought God had forgotten about them. But God hadn't forgotten about them. 
He hadn't forgotten their special people or his promises. So he chooses another man, Moses, a Hebrew, miraculously saved from death as an infant who grew up in the Egyptian court and fled after murdering a man and shepherded for 40 years in the desert. He comes back to Egypt and in a great display of power with 10 plagues that demonstrated Yahweh's superiority to the Egyptian gods, God set his people free from slavery in Egypt. God knew, he knew they would go back quickly to Egypt as soon as they encountered difficulty. So he sent them the long way on purpose, the way of the wilderness, the way of the desert, which put them right in front of a big obstacle that they would not be able to overcome on their own, the, the Red Sea. They have the sea in front of them, Pharaoh's army right behind them. What are they gonna do? God intervened. He opened the sea for them to cross when they thought they were doomed and the Pharaoh's armies were going to get them. They were free and rejoiced with dancing and singing. They could not believe that their God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob is now here opening the sea in front of them for them through, to cross through and then deliver them from their enemies. And you would wonder, how could they ever doubt God? How could they ever yearn for Egypt again? I mean, if I had seen that, trust me, I would always believe God. I would always obey him. That was not the case. And as Jay pointed out last Sunday, the Israelites had left Egypt, but Egypt hadn't left their hearts. They were physically free, but internally, they were still slaves. Why? Because whenever they stood at a threshold, awaiting to see God's provision, how he would deliver them, if he would keep his promises, like he had many times in the past, they chose unbelief, grumbling, disobedience. And the author of Hebrews opens up bringing back to memory an incident by quoting Psalm 95 that happened in a place called Massa testing and Meribah quarreling where they complained. I mean they had just seen these things and they complained against Moses because they were thirsty and said why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and animals of thirst? And God was patient. He gave them water from a rock. But they continued to doubt time after time. God continued to be patient. And not only that, he provided for them and he decided to dwell among them. He said, you know what? 
I am going to make my home among you through the tabernacle. Whenever they would go, God would go with them. There was a presence, a, a presence of God among this people that would go with them wherever they went. He not only did that, but he said, you know, I'm going to consecrate you as my priests. You will be my representatives in the earth. God was committed to giving them rest, to taking them to that land he had promised. This generation continued to walk in the wilderness of the desert as nomads towards a promised land for 40 years. And they made it. After 40 years of wandering through the desert, of seeing miracle after miracle, patience from God, provision from God, they arrived to Canaan, the promised land. The promise of rest, of entering the land, is about to be fulfilled. There's a lot of expectation here. And they are at yet another threshold moment. And only belief is necessary for them to enjoy the promise. They are right there. The whole wilderness is behind them. There is the land. Belief is what they have to go through. And what happened? They sent 12 spies to check out the land, to see if it is true what God said, that it is as good as he says the land is. Twelve. Twelve spies go to check this land out, and only two, Joshua and Caleb, come back with a positive, encouraging, faith-filled report. Everybody agrees that the land is beautiful and fruitful, and that it is true, that it is amazing. But there are strong people, fortified cities already in the land. Joshua and Caleb say, doesn't matter. We are with God. He has delivered us in the past. We can go. We can enter. We can conquer. And the others said, nope. We are tiny grasshoppers compared to the giants of this land. We are not entering. The people grumbled once again against Moses, against God, and listened to these words, Egypt still in their hearts. Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Forty years of wilderness. And they still want to go back to Egypt. That was it. God proclaimed a judgment. And you would think, oh, of course, because the God of the Old Testament is so mean. So impatient, is he? No. He told them, you know, I will give you what you have always wanted. This generation will not enter my rest. They will not enter the land. Your children that you say are going to be prey, they will enter the, the land, but after 40 more years. And you will remain in the desert and die in the desert. 
In other words, their bodies would remain in the place that their hearts never left. They remained. God said, I will give you what you want, not me. Eventually, under Joshua's leadership, 40 years later, they enter the land. Yet, the kind of rest that God wanted for them was still elusive. Time after time, they were conquered. They were enslaved. Time after time, they turned to idols. Time after time, they doubted God. And you and I think, wow, that's bad. How could they do that? I would never do that. Well, the author of Hebrews says, wait a minute. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us, Hebrew Christians, Emmaus Church, whoever you are here today listening to these words, fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it, to reach that rest. So wait a minute. I thought they had failed. But here it says that there's still a promise of rest. And we are introduced once again to this big and beautiful concept that repeats itself throughout the Hebrew scriptures time after time. Rest. Shabbat. And here he's not just talking about kicking back, relaxing, not worrying about work. No, it's a lot deeper than that. And in Hebrews, it is presented in three ways. God's own rest in the seventh day of creation. The rest Joshua gave to the people when he brought them into the land. And a future rest for the people of God. So what is rest? Who is tired today? Who, had exper who experienced fatigue or anxiety this week? Good. The rest God talks about from the beginning is an action. What? Wasn't it just like nothing? No. It's an active decision to pause, to step back to cease, and in that to enjoy, to bask in the goodness of God and take that rest into the whole of life moving forward. It wasn't supposed to be just one day. It was supposed to be a lifestyle. The action actually began with God himself. He himself rested on the seventh day of creation. Was it because he was depleted and he couldn't create one more plant? No. Out of chaos and darkness, he creates light and life in a rhythmic pattern that repeats six times. Yet the seventh day, a day with no end, according to the Hebrew narrative, he paused. He delighted. He took it all in and he enjoyed what he had created. And he said, you know what? This is not just good. It is very good. And with that, he set the pattern for his whole creation. Not a pattern of productivity and frantic pace, but a pattern of trust and delight of doing what the creator appointed us to do for our own good. 
That's what he had in mind. That's what he yearned for, for his people, the Israelites, and through them for the whole creation. But creation, Adam and Eve, the Israelites, you and I have rejected that rest through unbelief. And ever since, we live in the toil of slavery, the wilderness, being exiled far from that place of rest that we were created for, that we yearn for. And we find ourselves working hard, burdened to attain that wholeness, that rightness, that peace, day after day. And I stand before you today very open and vulnerable in this because this has been my reality for the past month. Walking through intense anxiety like I haven't felt it in many years. Are we hopeless? I've been paying attention to commercials lately, the kind you can't skip and you have to watch. So I'm like, well, I might as well redeem this time. Uh, and I would say about 80%, if not a higher percentage of them, give you or advertise a product that in some way promises to make your life easier so you can pursue that rest, that wholeness, that peace, that joy. Pay attention. Try me on this. Do it next time you're watching TV. The advertisers know that this is what we crave, so they sell us convenience and ease. You name it. Ultra-modern cars, the more powerful dish soap. That one is very tempting, let me tell you. <laughs> Convenient online shopping, online dating, advancements in education, meta, you name it. Like, it's all there to make your life easier, more convenient. So what does your brain think when, when, when you see that? Of course, I need that. I will have more time to do a X, Y, Z, and then I will rest, right? But look at what God does. He did the opposite. He didn't choose convenience to bring people into his rest. But in a paradox that I cannot understand, he chose the wilderness. The desert where they can't just kick back and relax. They were through a desert. And that's what God chose to bring them into his rest. A place where they would be faced with the need to trust him for their ultimate rest. To trust him with the most basic of needs. Water, food, shelter. We have that. We forget. We need him for the littlest to the biggest of things. Are we hopeless? The author, the preacher here in Hebrews says, no, enter Jesus Messiah. Who began his public ministry on a Sabbath day of rest and stood there before the audience and said, Today, this scripture is fulfilled. I'm here to give you freedom. 
I'm here to give you healing. He modeled a life of activity and love and service, but also difficulty, rejection, and pain. Always from a place of rest, a place of trust and obedience to the Father. He himself experienced death. And through his resurrection, he inaugurated a new kind of creation. A creation that begins to enjoy that rest that God designed from the beginning. And he empowered us, his followers, to live in light of that final fulfillment of God's rest. To live as if his rest is already here. Free from sin and the systems of slavery of this world. That's what Jesus is saying come into. But... It so happens that following Jesus is hard. So what does that mean? I mean, this all sounds great, but following Jesus, persevering in him is hard, friends. Just like it was hard for the Hebrew people to wander through the wilderness towards a promised land of rest. It's easy to judge them, but trust me, if you're hot, thirsty, your children are crying, your cattle wants water. I mean, it's understandable. (laughs) It is hard. There are seasons in following Jesus that feel like a promised land. But as far as I've lived, to be quite frank, the majority of seasons feel like a wilderness in some aspect or another. And that's why the preacher is telling these Christians today, Guys, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts today. In other words, remember who God is, what he has done in your life. Persevere in trusting Jesus. Persevere in obedience, even in the pain or confusion of the wilderness. And he will fulfill his promise of rest. He will. The Hebrew Christians listening to these words experienced significant forces that made it very hard to remain faithful to Jesus and to persevere. For example, example, neighbors would ridicule them, right? They would put pressures on them, hoping to draw them away from their commitment and their practices, from their allegiance to Jesus. They would lose customers, family, influence, advocates. And not only that, they still face what we all face on a daily basis, temptation to reach for immediate pleasure and quick fixes, to advance their own name and ego instead of the message of the kingdom and the humble way of life that Jesus Messiah modeled. So they found themselves always in a conundrum. In the words of author David De Silva, they found themselves paying a significant cost in the here and now for the sake of a shadowy promises of something that might materialize in the there there and then. So the challenge is live here with all you have, all you are trusting fully in the middle of difficulty because your eyes are set on a future promise. And you would think, 
wow, why? <laughs> why would I do that? The preacher is encouraging them and challenging them to believe. Everybody repeat, believe. Good. Because unbelief was what kept that desert generation from entering the land of rest. And the thing is, we think belief is just this like mental assent to something. Who believes here that vegetables are good for you? Great. You, you all believe it, right? I believe it too. Who in here eats at least two servings of vegetables every day? Ah, so you don't believe it, really. That's what the Hebrew author would say. You, you don't really believe that, right? You don't really believe vegetables are good for you. In the Hebrew scriptures, in the, in the word of God, believe is not just mental assent. Like, oh yeah, I, I think that's true. But it is a commitment. Not just a set of practices, but a commitment. It requires a commitment and a response. Living according to what you say you believe. And we have different categories of belief. We have our private beliefs. You know, the things you do when nobody else is watching, that tells you something of what you believe. The public belief when you come here and you pray to Jesus and you exalt his name. But the core belief is how you live your life day in and day out. So the preacher is telling them to believe, he says, verse 9. So then there remains the Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his work as God did from his. He's telling them, believe that Christ's work is enough to allow them to enter into rest. Because of him, you can pause you can give away the burden of trying really hard to earn rest, to hear God's approval, and instead receive a lighter burden. The burden of Christ who calls us to strive, to work hard, to remain faithful, to remain living in the already of his rest, the rest you already have, and the not yet of the final fulfillment with our eyes fixed in that final rest to come when Christ will finish making all things new. The renewal of all things. That's where your brain has to be in order to persevere in the wilderness. I want to leave you with this equation of what believe truly is. Trust plus obedience equals belief. That leads into rest. Trust and obedience equals belief that leads into rest. So rest is never passive. Because it is when you trust and obey that you are living in accordance with the greatness, the supremacy of Christ. And with a heart that is soft and responsive to his love and his leading. When will that happen? Hear what the preacher says today. Today. And that is so opposite to our tendencies to seek rest. We tend to condition rest to a series of prerequisites. 
For example, when I started keeping a day of rest, a Sabbath day, I would easily become very annoyingly dogmatic about it, right? No, I cannot wash that one dish because that's not restful. <laughs> I cannot make that one phone call because, nope, that's not Sabbath-like. I have to do cool Zen-like things to make it count as Sabbath and, you know, go to my coffee shop and read my books. So I was stressing about doing it right, which is the opposite of what Sabbath rest should be. And then add to that, if I had an argument with Zach, oh, well, there goes my Sabbath. Might as well start working right now. This is it, right? <laughs> and then I had children. And it became even more stressful because all my ideas of rest were like, how am I supposed to zip coffee for 30 minutes with a light candle and, and pray? Like, I can't do that. So what does it mean? Then I realized how full Jesus' Sabbaths actually were. They were full of inconveniences, full of distractions. He was going one way and then boop, boop, here comes this, here comes that. Full of opposition. Yet he remained in that rest, serving, delighting in God, the Lord of the Sabbath. So friends, you can keep your day of rest, your Sabbath. You can turn off your devices. You can go on retreats. You can keep our communal day of rest next Sunday. Don't come. We won't be here. Sabbath Sunday. You can do all these things. But if your life is not one of daily trust and obedience in Jesus, you will not enter God's rest. You will not. Because all those practices are there in place to reveal what is true in our inner private convictions, our core beliefs. So if you're not living daily in trust and obedience, you can keep a Sabbath. You can turn off your devices after 8 p.m., yet you will not enter God's rest. Another tendency we have is to postpone our vision of rest. Listen to this. When I retire... I will rest. When I die, I'll rest in peace. <laughs> when I get the house, when I get that promotion and earn more money, therefore I can get to travel more. When my children graduate, when I find a spouse, that's when I'll get rest. And we live day in and day out without ever entering God's rest. We continue to be tired of our toil. And he says, listen, today, not tomorrow, not when you die, today is the day. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. One more thing I want you to remember. Just as with the stories of the Hebrew people and them being chosen and walking with God, The threshold to enter his rest was often a test of faith. Often, not often, all the time, always. It was a circumstance in which we can choose to either trust ourselves 
trust our strength or others' strength or trust God and therefore act upon that trust, obeying. It was always a test of faith, a circumstance in which they could do nothing to provide for themselves, nothing to escape from the enemies, nothing. In our lives, we have this sense of control that we can sustain ourselves, that we can sustain our families, that we can sustain our lives. And here, the author is saying, no. The invitation to enter rest is always a threshold of wilderness. A test of faith. The wilderness is necessary to enter his rest. Otherwise, our hearts quickly harden and return to slavery. That's our condition. This leads me to ask myself, what is the condition of my heart today? Is my public belief the same as my private core belief? What is the wilderness I'm walking through? What are the Egypts that keep me enslaved when I have been made free? I want to take a look at my life today, friends, because this is for me as much and if not more than it is for you. The warning is severe. Unbelief results in the rejection of God's good design for you. I have to stand before the person of Jesus and honestly take a look at my life and say, do I truly believe that he is who he says he is? That he is supreme and great? I will have to give an account of my life to God. So if my way of life isn't one that shows that my hope of both present and ultimate rest is found only in Jesus, there are some questions I need to be asking, some changes perhaps that I need to be making. Is my way of life one that shows that only Jesus is of supreme worth and I find my true wholeness in him alone? Is my belief in Jesus and his supremacy and my allegiance to him and his kingdom ultimately expressed in daily trust and obedience? Because I know that's how I persevere in the wilderness. Am I a follower or not? Or perhaps am I just a sympathizer of Jesus, with Jesus? I think he's cool and I get to enjoy all the perks of saying I'm a Christian and coming to church and having cool friends. But I'm still toiling hard to achieve my good life, the better version of myself, my dreams. Or am I persevering as a follower of Jesus that finds his rest even in the wilderness and difficulty of this life? as I journey towards complete rest in Him. And this question, do I see the appeal of daily, mundane, little, quiet acts of trust and obedience? 
Or do I only seek the big public moments to sustain my faith and justify my belief? I do not need to leave you with a practical application, just with the words of Hebrews. Let us strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Sorry if today the notion of rest is not too restful. But <laughs> you have heard God speak to you today. And in the past, through his word, through prayer, through your church family, most importantly, through Jesus and his life and death and resurrection, his word is living and active. And it might feel painful, it might expose the true condition of your heart, and that might feel offensive or intrusive, but that is a good thing, friends. Because if he exposes and breaks and wounds, if he takes you through the wilderness, it is in order to heal and transform you and make you more fit for true rest, the rest you desire and need. Think about it. A sword can only pierce a heart of flesh, not a heart of stone. So today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Let's pray. What a gift, Lord, it is to know your story to immerse ourselves in the scriptures, in the story of how you redeemed your people despite their unfaithfulness, you remain faithful. I thank you for all the ways you have exposed the conditions of my heart and for the many ways in which you have exposed the conditions of the hearts of my brothers and sisters here today. Thank you that you always challenge us and sometimes it might feel painful your discipline and your challenge might be like a wound, but it is in order to heal us so we're more fully human in you, so we can rest. So next weekend, as we pause to cease, to not come here, may we remember these things in trust and obedience so we might experience rest here as we await for the fulfillment of final rest, because you are making all things new. Thank you, Lord.